the way Bitcoin works and the way that Bitcoiners as a community or people who really value Bitcoin or are Bitcoin only or people that just want to hold a lot of Bitcoin, those people are usually made in bear markets, right? So we just went through 2020, 21, 2022. Um, all of the Bitcoiners, like the people that were really hardcore Bitcoin only, were the people that became Bitcoiners in 2018 for, and, and, and earlier. But like a lot of people, even at Swan, most of us did some crypto in 2017, in 2018, just like you guys, it sounds like we became Bitcoin only. It was the bear market. It was the failure of ICO promises. It was the, the failure of all these speculative technologies that caused us to see that, okay, Bitcoin is the right way to, to do it. Um, that's what we're seeing now. Welcome to Bitcoin Basics with your hosts, Faris and Gordon. Visit bitcoinbasics.help if you need help buying and securing your Bitcoin. We have a brand new podcast. Visit myprivacy.help to subscribe. Did you know you can completely control your personal information without relying on a third party? Faris, Gordon, and industry experts explain how you can reclaim control of your data, your privacy, your life. Visit myprivacy.help. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Bitcoin Basics podcast here with your uh, hosts, Faris and Gordon, as usual. Today is the 23rd of November, 2022. The price of Bitcoin is $16,104. The block height is 764,324. Now, Gordon, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, buddy. And uh, before we get started, um, if you guys are sick of Facebook and Twitter and all the trolling and all the nonsense that's going on there, we have a brand new community, and that is at myprivacy.social. And I know this is the Bitcoin Basics podcast. We have another podcast called the My Privacy Podcast. Um, so head along there. There is people to hang out with. You can um, hang out with Faris and I as well. But yeah, it's on a platform called Mastodon, which is kind of a um, alternative to Twitter. But basically, we have set that up ourselves. Come and join us. Come and join in the conversation. Talk about Bitcoin. Talk about privacy. Talk about whatever. Uh, yeah, myprivacy.social. Head there today. Create an account. So Thank with you, Gordon. With that, with that plug out of the way, we just had an amazing – Faris, we, we tend to just have incredible people on the show to share their insights, and we're, we're really blessed by um, people coming and, and sharing their time and expertise. And so we just had Stephen Lubka from Swan Bitcoin um, come on, and, and he's got an interesting background, an interesting story. Um, but Faris, I could ramble on about the interview. What did you think about it? Oh, he was a treat to have on. He, um, um, yeah, I listened to him for ages. Um, it, it actually went in directions I was expecting to because, um, Stephen is the, um, manager, managing director of Swan private client services, which he talks about. But we talked not just about, um, Bitcoin and the problems that we've had recently with exchanges like FTX, but, um, some philosophical and economic stuff as well. So, um, fascinating conversation. Um, I don't listen to our own show, Gordon, but I'm going to listen to this episode. <laughs> well, I have to for us because I edit it. So I always listen to our episodes. <laughs> um, no, right. Stephen's, Stephen's interesting. So he's got an economics uh, background and we 
talk a lot about that, but um, mm. yeah, as you said, uh, good insights and, and, and practical, you know, in terms of society yeah. and outside of Bitcoin. And um, I, I can see him sort of one of those people who straddles sort of the Bitcoin ecosystem and, but sort of re- lives in the real world. And he has some amazing blog posts. So I will link that in the show notes to some of his blog posts that he's done at, at Swan Bitcoin. So that's really good reading. Thank you. All right, here we go. Let's launch straight in with Stephen. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. Um, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh, yeah, we're having quite a few guys from Swan Bitcoin on recently. It's been good for us. And um, now you guys just fit, wrapped up a conference out in Los Angeles. Is that right? Yeah, we did. Uh, the first inaugural Pacific Bitcoin. Uh, we just we just wrapped that up in uh, in L.A. It was uh, I know everyone wants to say their stuff was great, but it was really an incredible experience. I've had like no fewer than like 30 people reaching out to me just saying it was uh, it was pretty special as far as Bitcoin conferences go. And and that was my experience too. And I'm not on the event team. So like it was, I was not the person that put it together or designed it. So when I went in, it was like, I was seeing it for the first time. You know what I mean? I, I didn't have any like inside sort of info and I was just impressed, man. It was just the size, the quality, the signal. It was just great. I got to meet, uh, a few people I was really looking forward to meeting as well as a ton of people off Twitter. So amazing time. For those of us who haven't been to a Bitcoin conference, what, what's it like? Give us just a general vibe of what happens there. Yeah. So at least in my experience, it, maybe some of that is like characterized by like people know me off Twitter. So people come up and have conversations, but I mean, just nonstop, like meeting people, talking to people, talking about Bitcoin, meeting people you've only kind of talked with online, uh, meeting people that you wanted to meet in the space. So I was fortunate enough to, to have dinner with Sailor, which was incredible. That was, that was, that was my first time meeting him. So that was, that was amazing. And. Uh, a few other people I've been looking forward to. So just a, an amazing time, you know. Um, I think it's a way that like this, this online, like this digital Twitter centric decentralized community that is Bitcoiners, like is all in the same place for a week. And it's just so special. I mean, you know, if you're anything like me, and probably you guys, you spend a lot of your time online thinking and talking about Bitcoin with Bitcoiners and uh, being able to just be in the same room as those people for, for you know, a few days, for a week is just, it's magical. Awesome. I mean, essentially we're all down the rabbit hole. So we're just meeting other like-minded people down that r- same rabbit hole. Yeah. I'm ashamed to say, I don't know about you, Ferris. I'm ashamed to say I've been to one conference and that was a crypto conference. <laughs> Never, ever again. Okay. That was in yeah. Singapore because I was close, but yeah. Terrible, yeah. absolutely terrible. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it's something that me and Stephen were just talking about before we jumped in. Um, now, before we go any further here, Stephen, um, sorry, this is what I should have opened with. Can you just tell our audience who you are, your Bitcoin origin story, and how you got involved with Swan Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I lead the Swan Private Team for Swan Bitcoin, and so that is our um, white glove concierge high net worth service where we work with uh kind of you know a little a little upper end bitcoin investors that 
have questions about their allocation. They have to set up a trust. They have a business structure. They want to do something a little more hands-on and just answer all their questions about Bitcoin. Every Swan private client gets a, a dedicated advisor that they can text or phone call, build a relationship with. And we just try to walk people through it. It's, it's all about being very hands-on. And we did that because, you know, we were looking out at the market and, and I joined Swan to spin up that program. So I've led it since day one. And, you know, it was just looking out at the market and seeing that, you know, um, most wealth is not held by highly tech savvy young millennials and Gen Z. Like, that's just a fact, right? And so when the only options in town are Coinbase and these kind of limit order books and these, you know, kind of more technical products and setting up your two-factor, that really targets who gets into it and what sort of audience is going to be drawn to that sort of user experience and user interface. And, you know, forget about talking with someone at one of those places. So we wanted to solve for that and create something. A lot of these people that are coming in, they're used to private banking model, wealth advisor model, financial advisor model, where, you know, they, you know, there's someone to call anytime you need anything. And so we've replicated that in the Bitcoin space. It's been very well received. So I've done that for Swan going on, uh, I think a little over uh, going on two years now, we launched Swan Private. It's been an amazing experience with just a, just a found phenomenal company in the Bitcoin space. And then for me personally, I, uh, I, I worked as a consultant for high net worth investors, uh, since like 2018, 2019. Um, on the early end of that, it was coming off kind of the 2017 bull market. I was into crypto. I was in the, you know, into ICOs and all this stuff. And then I, I helped work. I worked as a technical advisor to a couple firms that were doing some blockchain stuff. Um, but after doing that for a little while, I realized, wait a minute, there are some really profound limitations here. This doesn't work. And, uh, it caused me to really take a second look at Bitcoin and suddenly the design choices and the way in which Bitcoin was being developed, why they, they wouldn't do certain things, why they were doing other things really started to make sense. And, you know, you know, during, kind of mid to late 2018, like so many other people, that was kind of when I went Bitcoin only and realized Bitcoin is the thing to focus on. Um, and I've, you know, I've been in the space ever since and, you know, was fortunate enough to meet Corey and meet Swan uh, in mid to late 2020. And, you know, it's just been a great experience. Um, so some, a lot of what you just actually really echoes with us. Now, Swan is Bitcoin only. Are they are you only available as a service to American residents or is it available overseas as well? Full international. Yeah. There are obviously some com- countries we can't serve, like kind of the usual like list, as well as a couple, like a few companies in uh, countries in the Middle East we can't do, but mo- pretty much every country for the most part, some exceptions. And, and yeah, we've been, sorry, you go, go on. No, you go first. So we've been Bitcoin only since we launched this podcast in 20. 20- 19 um late 2019 and we've been yeah we've been doing something very similar helping people on board get their private keys off exchanges um why is holding bitcoin only getting your private keys off exchanges in a cold storage device why is it it's something that should be simple it's technically it's not it's not easy technically but it is a simple three steps yeah. Why is it in this day and age people avoid doing that because it seems so boring and we're chasing yield, we're staking coins? Why are we avoiding something so simple in this day and age? 
Yeah, great question. So I think you have a couple buckets there, right? And I think you highlighted some of them. There is one group of people that doesn't do it because they're using some sort of service to either earn yield, trade, leverage, you know, whatever it is. Like it needs to be on a platform or a protocol because they're trying to do something with it. Two, there's people that don't do it because it's intimidating or they don't know how to do it or they're worried that it's not going to be done securely or they'll lose their money. And then three, there are people that literally can't do it. So this is, this is, there is, this does exist. There are certain corporations and trusts that like IRA structures that like you literally can't do it. It is illegal, right? So there are just a kind of nod to that a little bit that for some, some of these more complex cases. There are restrictions there, unfortunately. But I think 98% of people, 99% of people fall into like the first two buckets. And I think they're very different. Those are very different reasons, right? And I think we're learning a lot as an, I mean, as an industry, because it's not really Bitcoiners, but like, I think the world is learning a lot about why these yield platforms, lending platforms, why these protocols these exchanges and these proprietary like trading shops, why they're so risky. Like I think the event and, you know, for anyone listening later, I'm talking about the FTX blow up. I'm talking about three arrows. I'm talking about Celsius. Uh, we've had some, you know, just huge failures of these central providers, these yield providers and, and, you know, even just exchanges and what, you know, this, there's a term in the industry called counterparty risk. And that basically means, how much risk? What What is the risk to you and your assets that you're taking by relying on this third party, right? And I think this this whole instance has been just a huge les- lesson for investors of, wow, like we thought people thought FTX was just like, you know, the giant in the room. They were so reliable. They were so, I mean, that wasn't really like Bitcoiners views, but like that was the view in the mainstream. And that was the view for a lot of investors and, you know, it turned out they were a total fraud and this 36, $36 billion corporation imploded in like less than seven days, like from the time the rumor started to the time you couldn't get your money off. That was incredible, probably historic in terms of the speed of the collapse. And um, that was counterparty risk that people thought they were dealing with like a reputable third party, that they were getting these sustainable yields uh, in some degrees. and that just turned out to be totally false. And it shows that like, you know, if you had asked, if you had asked somebody in that space, like a month before, do you trust, you know, I'd pay you a million dollars to keep all your net worth on FTX for a month. Like almost everybody would have done it. Like almost everybody would have said, Hey, yeah, like these guys are trustworthy. And you know, those were, those were smart money. Those were like very sophisticated investors and they all got, they, you know, they all got blown up. So that's that's counterparty risk. And how do you avoid it? The only way to avoid it is by taking self-custody. The only way to avoid it is by not having a counterparty. Um, and I think what's interesting there, and this is a little less tailored to the FTX thing, but um, that's also the beauty of Bitcoin, the asset, because Bitcoin is one of very few assets that actually intrinsically has no counterparty risk, right? Like if you have equity 
the company you're investing in, like, you, you know, it's not a bearer asset, right? If they decide to do something, you're at risk. If you have a claim on gold and the gold's not there, you don't have that gold. If you have various things, like Bitcoin is one of very, very few assets, uh, dollars in a bank, right? The bank is your counterparty, like your risk is there. Um, Bitcoin is something you can actually own for yourself. It's highly unique. The only other things you can do that for is basically a bar of gold or, or something similar like a commodity. Uh, obviously Bitcoin has huge advantages over those. Um, but that's the, that's, that's one of the beauties about Bitcoin. And so people chase yield and people take these risks on these products because they think they're safe because they want to earn a little extra on top. And I think the number of people doing that is going to come down significantly after this. And then just to, to wrap up, um, I think we can do a better job as an industry at making self-custody more accessible, easier. I think we can can improve there. But I also think it's important to say that it actually is really simple. It's it's writing down 12 or 24 words and, and you know plugging a USB device into your computer. Almost everybody can do it. It is it is very accessible, and uh, if you're nervous, don't let don't let like don't let it be black or white, all or nothing. You don't have to either have all your Bitcoin, you know, on an exchange or something, or all your Bitcoin in cold storage on day one. You can buy some Bitcoin. You can put a hundred bucks on your hardware wallet, send some transactions, back it up from your seed, get used to using it. Do that for a couple weeks. There's there's no you don't have to jump in both feet right out the gate, get familiar with it. You'll realize it's easy. You'll feel comfortable. And then you can move over more of your Bitcoin. Well, you've, you've, you've mentioned a lot of points there, yeah. Stephen. Yeah, I'd like to, no, no, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'd like to get stuck into it and we could talk about FTX and um, all that uh, for forever and a day. And, and, and also the industry goes in cycles. Like there may have been people yes. who recently got into Bitcoin and you talk about Mt. Gox and like Mt. Mt. Gox or yeah. empty Gox. What are you talking about? So there may be people who just don't know sort of that stuff. They come from this. I, I'm seeing numbers on a screen when I log into my bank account. I've just bought Bitcoin on Binance. Like what's, what's the deal? So yeah, as you said, education and self custody is the key. Um, I assume a lot of that is what you do with um, Swan Private, for example, you know, getting people to move from exchange onto um, hardware wallets. Uh, you guys have recently bought Spectre or acquired uh, Spectre. Uh, sorry, Sparrow, not Spectre. No, Spectre. Um, you had it right, Spectre. Spectre. Right. I'm, I'm yeah, getting yeah. my projects confused. Um, um, yeah. Huge fan of their desktop software and, and their multi-sig we've actually used before. Um, is that like what? what's a typical – I know – Every customer is different, but is a lot of it just moving it from exchange into cold storage or? No, so it's a lot more. Um, that's part of it, right? But um, I've I've said this before that when somebody calls Swan, it's because there's a question no one else ever answered, right? Uh, and what I mean by that is for someone to be deep enough into Bitcoin that they're going to get on a phone with someone from Swan Bitcoin, they've got to be interested to a certain degree, right? Like that's not a, 
that's not like Joe at the, you know, that's not the like standard retail, like no knowledge onboarding path. Those people go to Robinhood or they go to Coinbase or they buy it on Cash App, right? For somebody to reach out and want to get on a phone call, they're motivated. They want to have a conversation. But the reason they're calling us for the most part is because no one in their life and no one, none of these, none of these other entities have ever satisfactorily answered the question of why Bitcoin or how Bitcoin or what is Bitcoin. And so what I found is there's usually a sticking point um, that we spend time kind of working through and presenting a case for Bitcoin. Why, why should Bitcoin have any value? Why should you hold Bitcoin? Like, why is it going to be here in five years? Um, and making sure that we present a really good, solid argument for why that is, because it is still new. And I think for those of us in the space, like, We've been in it for so long. It's like obvious, like, yeah, just buy some Bitcoin, put it on your wallet. That's a foreign language for most people. That makes no sense. Why does this thing even have a value? Like, um, and so a lot of it is laying that solid foundation, that solid groundwork. Um, and we think that's actually really important. And I actually believe that the better you understand Bitcoin, the better your investment in Bitcoin will perform. Because if you don't understand it very well, you will have a a lot more stress because you will be more worried because it's volatile. Two, you're more likely to maybe sell it at an inopportune time or not make the allocation. I'm not saying that everyone needs to make a huge allocation or this or that. But if you don't understand it well, you probably won't make the allocation you would have made if you did understand it well. Uh, which generally is a larger one. I've never really met somebody that like, as they understood Bitcoin more, they made a smaller allocation. So there's a, there's a real way that like your performance, the actual how well you do with your Bitcoin investment is going to be related to how well you understand it. And so that's, I think that's, there's a, that's a lot of what we do. And then strategy, optimizing how, what what percentage of your assets, all those sort of things. And then, uh, yeah, custody, all right, cold storage. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more there, Stephen. Your, your words actually echo as far as how much you invest in Bitcoin. Wenza Cesaris of Zappo said exactly that. He said, your investment in Bitcoin should be how much you understand it. And um, yeah, we, we've been doing this for a while now. And even um, I actually moved to how can I live 100% off of Bitcoin only and remove all fiat. And with the exception of one, one bill, I actually managed to, but it wasn't easy. Um, but one thing I want to ask you. So, um, cause we, I mean, anyone listening to our podcast is all we've been preaching is buy Bitcoin, move your private keys off exchange into a cold storage device. Um, simple, but boring message. Do you find in countries where their fiat currency has been going through inflation for quite some time, where they cannot trust the national currency and where they rely on Bitcoin, you know, I think countries like Venezuela, um, Turkey, these other countries where to them, Bitcoin is, they have to understand it, they invest in it. So they're not going to play with it. Whereas in countries, say like America, where I'm getting a steady paycheck, and for me, speculating on Bitcoin is not a problem. So I'm not even going to bother to remove my exchanges. Sure, I'll stake it. There's not that if this if Bitcoin doesn't work out for me, I can't pay my bills tomorrow. So are you guys, I don't know if you guys find that in countries where Bitcoin is plan B, they won't speculate on it. They won't stake it. It's There is that respect for its intrinsic value. Have you guys come across that thesis or am I just way off here? 
So I'm going to answer that in a slightly different way. I think that you'll find interesting. Um, I'm at a point where, and you could interpret this as like, there's like an angle you could take that's maybe bad on this, but I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's good. I think it's actually an like an indication of how early we really actually are. I think around the world, there's maybe a hundred thousand people that have a material portion of their net worth in Bitcoin. I think it's a very small number. Like, I don't mean like ten dollars on Cash App. I don't mean even you know a thousand dollars for the average American. I mean people that really understand it and have moved a material chunk of their savings into Bitcoin or live off Bitcoin or operate it. I think that number actually is still quite small. Um, and that's actually a sign, I think, of just how early we truly are, despite the price, despite how much it's grown. Um, on the trajectory of Bitcoin, I think we're still very much in these early innings. Most people around the world are not saving in Bitcoin in any way. And I don't see that as a bad thing. This is just part of the trajectory. Bitcoin's obviously growing. More people are using it. Um, and so, you know, coming back to your question, yeah, most people in the developing countries that have a relatively stable currency, and, and that is the case, like we need to we need to admit that, right? Like the dollar has been, you know, obviously there's been inflation, but you look at all the monetary dynamics, there's not a lot of ways like, you know, everything's been volatile, so you didn't do too well. Um, the dollar has had relative stability, euro less so, yen far less so. But, um, you know, particularly countries with easy access to the dollar, right? Like they're not fleeing short-term volatility. And so Bitcoin, it's just a financial investment. It's just portfolio dollars. It's just like this kind of thing that they think is going to go up that they're speculating on. And yeah, I mean, if you were treating it as your savings account, you're going to treat it differently. Like there's no, there's no way around that fact. And kind of going to my initial point, I don't think a lot of people are really at that stage yet. Um, and you go to other countries and I think, yeah, I think people who are saving in Bitcoin because they're in Lebanon or they're in Argentina and they're having like a real inflationary crisis, like, um, yeah, they're, I mean, they're not depositing it on Celsius, right? Like that, I think that's like very unlikely. Um, I, 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 I think, um, I think that number's still small too, you know, though. I think, um, I think, and this is something as a community, I think we need to acknowledge, like most people around the world, um, are fleeing to dollars right now. They are, um, and that's an opportunity for us. And that's something as a Bitcoin community that we both need to understand why they're doing that and address that and do a better job of educating and building Bitcoin into the asset because structurally, Bitcoin is the better asset. Um, in most people's perception right now in these situations, they just want stability and they know the dollar. So, you know, I, I say that as like, a that's a, that's a goal that we need to have. And it's a dynamic we need to understand and target. With the adoption rates, which you mentioned, so to me, I mean, the last 
18 months have been crazy. We've seen sovereign state adoption of Bitcoin, um, starting with El Salvador, moving on to Central African Republic. We interviewed uh, Prince Fitsui of Tonga. He's trying to do the same thing there. Um, I actually thought, okay, this is, look, network adoption rate's incredible. Um, and then with companies you mentioned, Michael Saylor, um, MicroStrategy. So we're looking at more hedge funds and listed companies buying Bitcoin, um, Tesla being one of them. I actually thought that might remove some of the volatility, especially the downside volatility, because more money coming in to buy more Bitcoin. But what I didn't consider is these <laughs> listed corporations have quarterly earnings. And if they're buying wow. Bitcoin, Bitcoin's down. So are we going to see where corporations come in to buy Bitcoin, but maybe do these financial accounting tricks that they do where, all right, we need to sell some Bitcoin because we've got quarterly earnings coming up. Is that something a Bitcoin trader or investor might have to consider? I uh, So obviously Tesla did do that. We know for a fact that Tesla sold part of their Bitcoin position because they had a short quarter and they needed to kind of uh, make those numbers look better. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, that's definitely a thing. And I'm sure we'll see some of that. But I think by far and away, what... Uh, you know, what we didn't, what none of us um, anticipated enough was the pure degeneracy of um, these crypto firms, right? Like that is the real, the real answer of the volatility there is you had traditional VCs and other and crypto VCs lending. I looked this up. So I, and I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I missed some edge case. But if you add up, I think just SBF alone, but certainly if you add up as Sam Bankman Freed plus uh, the Three Arrows Capital guys, this is the most money in all of human history that three people under the age of 35 have ever borrowed. They surpassed Alexander the Great, who historically borrowed uh, like $2.8 billion of gold as a, as a, as basically a child. And they literally with these, we have the, the industry lent these guys, these kids, um, billions and billions of dollars and it blew up and it, it just an intense chain of leverage sprawling these lending desks and these these lending lending firms i should say and um lent again against worthless collateral like like the people that lent against ftt you have this kid that okay sure he's supposed to run this like big company but he comes to you to borrow billions and all he has to give you is a token that he himself can print from thin air. And you could have gone and looked at the liquidity of the FTT market and realized like, like, like a basic level of due diligence would show you that there is not $4 billion in liquidity there. It's not really worth that. Like it's not a real price, but instead you just lend him uh, just this huge line of capital. So it all blows up. And uh, and they were selling paper Bitcoin. They were selling Bitcoin they didn't have, which suppressed the price and uh, selling customer assets into the market to facilitate their own bets. So, and I'll, you know, I'll stop talking about FTX here. But my point there is just that these were just incredible levels of degeneracy and leverage. And, and that's the volatility in the market. If it wasn't for these handful of firms, if it wasn't for Celsius, Three Arrows and FTX, I mean, I would be shocked if price wasn't 40% above here, even at this point. 
Um, just one thing I want to clarify. Thank you, Stephen. Was uh, when you say pay for Bitcoin, in essentially is someone goes on FTX and say they purchase point one Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, FTX will say they've sold them those point one Bitcoin, and it's not a problem for FTX or anyone else. In this, and until you actually try and remove your private keys, so at this stage you're under the presumption you own Bitcoin, but you don't because you haven't withdrawn them. Is, is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. So people would go to FTX. This is what it appears, right? I have no inside information. I'm just going off the public information that's available. But as it appears at this moment, um, people would go to FTX and they would buy Bitcoin. But FTX didn't actually have the Bitcoin that they were selling them. And so on their FTX account, it says, oh, you've got one Bitcoin or whatever. And there was no Bitcoin there. There was not actually one Bitcoin in your account. And because people just never withdrew it, it didn't matter. It was just points on a screen. Um, Or I'm assuming if they did go to withdraw it, FTX used all this borrowed money, like they had these billions of dollars they borrowed to just buy some real Bitcoin and fill the gap. Like it was only like at request. That's that's speculation on my part. I obviously don't know what they actually did, but... um, but yeah, but it was Bitcoin was sold that never existed. And that suppresses price. That's the issue mm. with yep. paper instruments or certain forms of derivatives or certain forms of like other kind of financial tricks you can do where you. So the reason it matters is because demand for Bitcoin comes in, dollar demand comes in. And if it gets satisfied, if it gets consumed by instruments which are not actually Bitcoin, then it doesn't do anything to drive the market price of Bitcoin up. And you can see this actually, I mean, this is also the case with like futures contracts on Bitcoin, the futures ETF. Um, You could even say grayscale to a certain bit, like a lot of money went in there and, you know, that just fluctuates the price of grayscale. It doesn't actually drive up the price of Bitcoin. So um, the point, the relevant point in all of this is if this paper supply, paper Bitcoin, the supply was not there to meet real demand, the price of Bitcoin would have been higher. We don't like speculating on price. Like our, our message has always been just buy Bitcoin, buy what you can for, moving to cold storage, which we'll talk about why I like Swan Bitcoin a lot for doing this. But just on your point there, could we potentially be looking at where people go, oh shit, I thought I was buying Bitcoin, I'm not. You have that demand come back into the market and then you do have a supply shock where it's like, I actually want my Bitcoin and we could see just bang, this thing catapult. Yeah, I think there are, there's likely multiple avenues of quote unquote paper Bitcoin in different forms that uh, have been flushed from the market via all of these companies blowing up. I think there's likely a few ways. I don't know if we'll ever know about all of them. Again, I'm guessing here, but I think it's pretty likely. And so with that off the market, and we've seen a lot of Bitcoin taken off exchanges and uh, the liquidations have happened and liquidity is low. If you were to see a lot of people come into the market and say, hey, I want to I want to hold Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that would have an outsized impact. But here's the other thing. I think we are in the process of seeing that. And what I mean is there's kind of this, the way Bitcoin works and the way that Bitcoiners as a community or people who really value Bitcoin or are Bitcoin only, or people that just want to hold a lot of Bitcoin, those people 
are usually made in bear markets, right? So we just went through 2020, 21, 2022. Um, all of the Bitcoiners, like the people that were really hardcore Bitcoin only, were the people that became Bitcoiners in 2018 for, and, and, and earlier. But like a lot of people, even at Swan, most of us did some crypto in 2017, in 2018, just like you guys, it sounds like we became Bitcoin only. It was the bear market. It was the failure of ICO promises. It was the, the failure of all these speculative technologies that caused us to see that, okay, Bitcoin is the right way to, to do it. Um, that's what we're seeing now. And that's what I think we're going to continue to see is all of these people who got burned by the FTXs and Celsiuses and cryptos of the world are going to be reevaluating what in this space is actually real. And when you approach this space with a critical lens, instead of just like believing the hype and trying to make money, a lot of people, most people come to the conclusion that it's Bitcoin. And so I think this whole event over the long run is going to massively increase the number of people that really value and are focused on Bitcoin. And that'll lead to the dynamic you're talking about. Yeah. And just on that, this is where I actually do want to give a shout out to Swan Bitcoin because, um, I mean, we've dealt with people who went to Bitcoin.com to buy Bitcoin, not realizing they're buying Bitcoin cash. Um, you go to any of these other exchanges and you can so easily buy the wrong thing. Um, yeah. And this is why Swan Bitcoin, you go to Swan Bitcoin, not only are you buying Bitcoin only, but we, I helped the client recently set up um, a cold storage device and we're moving her private keys off Swan Bitcoin. And she, this was, uh, this just was amazing. It's so simple. She, we, on Swan Bitcoin, we set up DCA where every week she's buying a certain amount of Bitcoin and you automatically set it up where she, it just automatically goes into a cold storage device. I'm like, wow, this is an exchange, not just encouraging, but facilitating you to move your private keys off. So yeah, shout out to you guys for, for doing that because this is something we've been preaching for years and we don't really come across exchanges that encourage and facilitate that process. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, it's a really core value for the company. We want people to do it and we're here to help you figure it out too. So if it feels intimidating, great. We'll help mm. you get over that hump and answer any questions. And, you know, we do that all day. Now, just following up on, I've got one more question because I know I've been monopolizing this today. Sorry, Gordon. Um, uh, Stephen, what is a Bitcoin maximalist? Yeah. So I'm going to answer that in like, um, there's a few ways of looking at that. I, I think at its heart, it means someone who is, I've used the word Bitcoin only, right? Like Bitcoin only is largely synonymous with Bitcoin maximalist, but I actually like personally, and like for people that like identify and, and like the phrase Bitcoin maximalist, like by all means go for it. It was actually created by someone who is making fun of Bitcoiners. So the term Bitcoin maximalist originates from Vitalik and it was like a, it was like a pejorative. It was like an insult. And I think it is largely, I think it's, it's like, a, it's like a slur that's been reclaimed, right? So like community uses it and feels like has a positive identity around it. And like that's, that's great and wonderful. And, you know, do whatever you're going to do with that. But I do think that part of the context of the phrase Bitcoin maxi has been like co-opted by people criticizing Bitcoiners. And it is like this form of like straw man, which is like a, like a, like a fake representation of Bitcoiners where you'll see people that are critical and they'll create this like exaggerated 
performative version of like the Bitcoin maxi running around. So I I've used the term Bitcoiner or Bitcoin only, I think just to get away from that a little bit. Um, but at its heart, what it all really refers to and like the authentic usage and not the way that some of these crypto people have tried to like create messaging around it is it's just somebody that is Bitcoin only and Bitcoin only means like you're not investing in promoting supporting all of these other like this whole spectrum of altcoins and crypto and like you know you could you know you could obviously say and you need to take self custody and you don't keep it on the exchanges and you do this and you do that and like i th- i don't think it's i think it's important to not get too narrow there i don't think we need to like make this long list of things that like to be a bitcoiner like you need to satisfy all of them i think the core of it is just like understanding the difference between bitcoin and crypto and realizing that like i mean these are so this is something that's really important to me and i think doesn't get enough airtime um even in a world even in a world where let's say these crypto projects succeed at kind of the vision of what they're trying to build what you get is hyper financialization. What crypto projects are trying to do fundamentally is to financialize more areas of the world, which are not financialized. What does that mean? What does financialize mean? Uh, let me give an example of what happened to houses, uh, real estate, uh, in the U.S. So, Houses have always been valuable, right? They've always people, they're, they're probably one of the biggest things we own. We love them. They're expensive. A lot of time and energy goes into building them. People want them. They've always commanded financial value. So like houses have always cost something and they've always been in some sense, you could always kind of like buy a piece of land or buy a house and you probably could sell it for more money 10 years down the road. Like that's been happening forever. But something interesting happens in the 1900s. Maybe it, 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 don't quote me on that. It could have originated a little bit earlier, but I think it really hits its stride in the 1900s where it's not just people buying houses and building houses and trading and selling houses that we, you start to see houses become financialized. They go from something you buy because you need to live in it or buy because you're like a landlord and you're doing rentals to something that becomes an investment asset. And this gets facilitated by cheap cash which is subsidized by federal agencies, which provide mortgages. And we create this whole financial layer around providing loans to buy houses. And we subsidize those loans and we create a a bailout lender, a lender of last resort, that if the loans go bad and the banks have trouble, they're going to step in and bail them out. That's financialization. It's not the only way it can happen. But you take something that naturally existed and you know had a market and you basically build and build and build and build all these financial products and lending and leverage and layers around it and so what happens the price of homes becomes tremendously unaffordable and because you start funneling all this investment capital into houses now people can barely afford to live in houses that's financialization what crypto is trying to do is to do what financialization did to real estate, to everything. They want to do it to games and they want to do it to media and they want to do it to social media and sneakers and NFTs and 
that's not a, that's not a good, that's not good. That's a bad outcome. Financialization is, is largely net negative for society. And Bitcoin is de-financialization. Bitcoin is trying to de-financialize an overly financialized and over-leveraged world. And that's why I love it. So just like to kind of paint like a distinction there, even if we assume these people succeed and like technically build the thing, which I don't actually believe, but like, even if they did, I think it's actually going to be bad for society. So Bitcoin is DeFi. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll jump in there with a follow-up. You mentioned something really um, fascinating to me that um, this was a story that my, one of my um, political economics professors told me when I was doing my undergrad. And he said, so you mentioned uh, real estate in the 1900s. So when the 1929 collapse happened, FDR wanted to diversify people away from the stock markets. Yeah. Um, yep. Before 1929, if you wanted to buy real estate, you had to provide a 50% deposit minimum and pay off the remainder within five years, which meant yep. only the wealthy yep. could buy real estate. Sure. Sure. So the message FDR sent was, we will allow middle income to buy real estate, to diversify from the stock market. And this next part makes sense. I've never been able to confirm it, but this professor said to me, FDR apparently said that if a man holds a mortgage, he's unlikely to get politically involved. So it was a way of keeping people away from the Communist Party. And this sentiment I've seen echoed in the film, Thank You for Smoking, just the pressure of paying a mortgage means I'm focusing on the mortgage. I don't have time for anything else. And yeah. I think we're we're seeing now sovereign states treating Bitcoin the same way, like when El Salvador implemented Bitcoin. The Washington consensus basically said, we're going to cut you off from the foreign aid program. And Bukele just gave him the big middle finger and said, sure. So this is where to me, Bitcoin is moving into geopolitical economics. Yeah. So that, sorry, yeah. I'll jump in. That was a fascinating point that you brought up. No, that and that was a great, I actually really like, I and I would add a piece to what you said that I, I think that's interesting around like the, if you've got this mortgage to pay, you kind of have to keep paying the mortgage and that's going to influence like risk-taking politically. Um but there's another angle too that is less about the mortgage and more about owning a home and the and the way that financialization has really messed that up. If you think about it, owning a home is almost like a, like a tongue of tongue in cheek proof of stake for being a member of a nation. Once you own a home, you are a stakeholder in your country. What happens matters to you. If your city thrives you get value and your home is stable. And if there's political chaos, you have something to lose. And not just that, but you have a home, then you start a family. Once you have kids, well, now you really care about the future of your country. It matters to you if it all goes belly up in 50 years. Like, But instead, because of financialization, We've created a world where you have all of these younger people that are not starting families, that don't own homes, and so they become politically radicalized. Why wouldn't they? They have no stake in the country. So proof of stake is better than proof of work. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> um, there is no second best consensus mechanism. But You mentioned uh, – sorry, go okay. No, no, no. But I, I say that as just as a metaphor. Like I, I think you know, it just you have a stake in the system, and 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 having a stake is better than no stake when we're talking about countries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned uh, DeFi, and and it, it, I think it's ironic because Bitcoin 
was the original DeFi, you know, yes. every, every, every time you send a transaction, but, um, uh, you were sort of around in that 2017, 2018. I don't know about other people. Faris and I, we were around then and we're starting our own company about self custody. And I'm kind of proud that we have always been Bitcoin only for the very start. Awesome. Like yeah. personally, yeah, sure. I've, I've done the whole shitcoin thing or whatever, but, um, as a business, it was Bitcoin only. And, and I don't know if you remember this, Faris, but we were fighting people looking at Ethereum, looking at XRP, looking at all these other stuff saying, I'm getting more interest from this. Why, why, why shouldn't I buy this? And and so yeah. we were actually pushing back about that stuff. We weren't being called stupid or whatever, but a lot of people were saying, no, no, we don't sort of want to go with you. We don't sort of care about you because you guys are closed-minded. So yeah. whether you call that Bitcoin maxi, Bitcoin only, I mean, there's you look on Twitter, <laughs> there's so much noise around. I don't really care. Um, personally, I'm yeah. an open source maxi. So anything that's yeah. sort of open source, I'm... I'm completely for. Um, we, but yeah, I want to plug we, you. We can prove. So we can prove that we've been Bitcoin only because we're not popular at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, I want to plug you though, Stephen. You've written some amazing articles over at Swan Bitcoin. Um, SwanBitcoin.com slash signal, I think it is, your blog. Anyway, go to SwanBitcoin.com, click on the blog link. Uh, you've written um, why selling uh, Bitcoin at a loss can maximize your Hodling potential, Bitcoin and the true meaning of inflation. Uh, and especially this one, capital misallocation, Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah. Um, I will link to the episode because I don't want to regurgitate it that you did with Peter McCormick. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, everyone should have a listen to that. That, that was, that was really mind blowing. Um, one question and I know it's an annoying question, but I have yeah. to ask it because I love getting uh, opinions from, from different people. Um, what can't Bitcoin fix? I don't. So, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go for like, probably like the most controversial and like meaningful statement here. I don't think Bitcoin can fix governance. And what I mean to say, Bitcoin does not get rid of the need for humans managing organizations. Right. Like, I don't believe it is like a portal to like a post. And I use the word governance really broadly there. It's not like synonymous with government or like a current, like contemporary form of government. But even on a, in a Bitcoin world, there will still be politics. I use that in like the original meaning of the term of human beings deciding what to do together. Um, and I think. Bitcoin improves governance by removing the temptation of the money printer from easily influenced parties, but I don't think it eliminates the need for it. And so something that matters to me is that as we advocate for Bitcoin to fix the monetary layer, there is a a separate track, which is also important that I don't think that just implementing Bitcoin magically fixes everything on the governance angle. And so we also need to be thinking about society. And we also need to be thinking about this moment in time of uh, what are the cultural norms that have got us to this? And I'm speaking as an American here, right? Like I'm, I'm like, you know, America is you know, there's a, there's cultural tensions going on and there's governance tensions. And like, you know, I think they get exaggerated in some degrees, but they're also deep. And I think that we've lived in a world that has advanced very rapidly, that we've seen changing technology, changing 
social structures, changing everything. And um, for us to have a thriving future, we need to fix the money. We absolutely, I mean, you know, if you listen to the Peter McCormick like interview, you know how much I think the money influences everything. But I think there's also certain social rifts and there's certain governance dilemmas that uh, will not be automatically fixed. So, I mean, we, we talk about that all the time, you know, as Bitcoiners uh, getting on a Bitcoin standard. What, okay, so what would that look like? What would governance under a Bitcoin standard look like? Yeah, so I I don't like, there's, in my opinion, there is no getting away from the need for, you can never get rid of power. You can only change where it is. That's just like, you you can't get rid of it. There is always going to be, it has to be directed somewhere. Uh, if you don't give anyone power, then you have this sort of anarchy. You have this sort of like free for all, which is bad. And so the only option is like power has to go somewhere. And so we can only try to create the right structure and the best structure for power to like pass through that benefits people like that benefits us all. and doesn't like disproportionately serve a few at the expense of everybody else. I don't have a, I don't have a theory of like a brand new system of human governance to throw out here. Um, but what I could say is that I, <laughs> this might be a little philosophical, but I actually think it's, really central, really central to the problems we're facing today. I think that one of the biggest challenges that has created the current environment is that in the pursuit of external abundance, in the pursuit of lots of things and a prosperous economy and the world we live in, in this very abundant world, and also in the pursuit of a very stable world, the world of the last 50 years has been historically stable. Um, our current open universalist, um, pluralistic system, like, like this, we have this system that is based around accepting everything equally. And what I mean to say is that there are no cultural hierarchies. There are no, like, you can't say that, like, this one made up culture that like values taking care of your family and this other made up culture that like takes grandma out behind the shed when she turns 60 and puts her down. Well, those are like the current view would say that, well, those are just subjective cultural values. And you can't really say one is better than the other because that would be taking like a side. Um, and that has been kind of the cost, I think, of our modern abundance and that modern abundance has been really important and really good, but it's come at a cost of like flatlanding all virtue, meaning, ethics, morality, value, beauty, truth, like these things that like the current system, it can't measure them. So it doesn't think they exist. It's like this paradigm of objectivity where the only things that are true are those that we can measure in like a double blind, like study and like a scientific study. And I think that's really a problem because those aren't the only things that are true. And those aren't the only things that matter. And I think if we're going to move forward as a, as a society and as a civilization, 
you need to have virtue and meaning and truth and beauty. And these need to be things that you care about and that are culturally important. And if we don't want to, as like an open universalist society where we need to accept everything and everyone, if we don't want to decide that like this is meaning and this is virtue and this is truth, which I think if we can find another way around, that would be good because that's what we've done in the past. But we need to find a way to reintegrate those themes into society because everyone's just drowning in meaninglessness. Everything is just this postmodern like equivalency where everything is equal and nothing is different. And I don't like that. And I think it is really pervasive. And I think it is really, really takes the meaning out of life for people. Um, so I know that was probably kind of off topic for, for this, but, uh, no, you know, absolutely yeah. not, not, nothing is off topic because yeah. it, I mean, we, we talk about this all the time. You talk about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, you got to yeah. get your, your, your basic needs of food security yeah. and education first. And not only in developing countries and developing societies, they don't really care. They just see, um, you know, US, Australia, whatever, we're LARPing, you know, we're just doing all this, you know, demonstration, all this kind of stuff. The rest of the world doesn't care. But even within America, you know, if you've got someone who's struggling paycheck to paycheck, they don't have time to sure. be worried about this ideology and virtue signal and stuff like that. They're just like, what am I going to eat tonight? What am I going to yeah. eat tomorrow? How do I pay yeah. this gas bill or what about that? So um, that's the reality. Yeah. And that's why the current form of society has been so successful because it's, it's really good at making stuff. It's been very good at that. And that's been important and good. And like you said, if you don't have like reliable food on the table, all you really care about is how do I get more food? Right. And that's, that's valid and that's important, but um, it's just come at such a terrible cost, right? Like We've never lived in a society like this. Like there's no historical comparison. And, um, you know, I don't think we should just revert to the past because, you know, that's how you had war in Europe for a thousand years of my religion's right. No, my religion's right. Like that wasn't particularly functional either. But, um, you know, the next frontier for us to drive civilization forward is not going to be the objective. It's not, it's, we're going to have to wrangle with these like mm. less easily definable things. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Steven, I sorry, love... I know we're at the top of the hour and you've got to get, I going. got a little bit more time if you guys want to keep oh, yeah. running. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's like you mentioned the thousand year war and everything. And um, yeah, I, I've studied history and is where I can appreciate Bitcoin from an economic and historical perspective. Gordon, He's an IT security specialist, so um, he gives that that mix and helped me understand that. But to me, Bitcoin is the next stage of this evolution because we had the um, the decoupling of the church and the state. Yeah. And yes. what we need now is a decoupling of the church and the economics of sorry of the state and the economic yeah. system. And yeah. this is absolutely. why they're fighting so hard against it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, the the the. Bitcoin to me is like a, a neutral monetary asset. It's something that we can trust to be credibly separated from the state or anybody else, right? Like just, it is just neutral. 
And I think that's just so important, right? That's just so good. And that's only going to become more important if we do see like a, a lot of people talk about today that we've seen a peak of, of globalization where the world has become increasingly globalized. And a lot of people are predicting that there's more like regions, like, like countries geographically close to each other start to work together more and the world kind of splits a little bit. Um, in that world, Bitcoin's the only asset that can cross the economic block, right? If China, Russia, India becomes an economic block and Canada, US, Mexico, South America becomes an economic block, what financial asset is China, India, Russia going to trust to receive from the US? Fiat currencies can be frozen. Securities are nothing. They don't mean anything. Bank deposits don't mean anything. Nothing means anything in a world where you can't trust your counterparty. Um, Bitcoin does. You can trust Bitcoin. I can trust the digital Amero, which is coming very soon. Yeah, I mean, Voltaire wrote about this, you know, all fiat currencies eventually go to their intrinsic value, which is zero. And, um, you know, 50 years ago, we had the the pound sterling as a global reserve currency. Before that, we had the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch. So it's only a matter of time before the petrodollar has peaked. And potentially that peak was actually 2006 was the peak. And we are starting to see this unwind of the petrodollar system. It's not going anywhere. It's going to be around for a long time. Um, but do you think we've spoken about this on the show and we actually think that, um, uh, so you spoke about paper Bitcoin. Do you think we might get to a stage where we might have two values for Bitcoin, a KYC Bitcoin and a non-KYC Bitcoin? Because the, the issue you might have is even though governments can't prevent you from owning Bitcoin, they can probably freeze it on your exchanges. So is this where, and we've seen a renewed interest in, in mining Bitcoin because it's non-KYC Bitcoin. So is this where we're heading, where bank governments are going, okay, we can't stop this thing, but we can stop you from withdrawing it? I hope not. That's not the outcome I want to see, right? That doesn't mean it's it's uh, not possible. Um, the outcome I want to see for Bitcoin is structural integration. I don't want I don't I don't want the outcome where like the Bitcoiners are fighting every nation state on the planet. That I don't think that's good for Bitcoin. I don't think that's good for people. I don't think that's good for people in the global south. I don't think that's like optimal in any way. Maybe it comes to that and like those defenses should be prepared and like we need to have infrastructure and self-custody and these like I'm not saying don't do the things that would allow you to protect yourself in that scenario. But the world I want is the one where Bitcoin incrementally is added to the system while preserving its neutrality. And Bitcoin can exert the like structural influence that it has and improve like everyone's life. Like, like that's the outcome I want. I, I, I don't want, I don't want the, you know, Bitcoin seasteading pirates, right? Like that's, that's cool. But like, I don't think that's like the highest good for all people on the planet. I, I think like the thing that will benefit the most people is if we can gradually incrementally maneuver Bitcoin into 
like a savings medium for everyone around the globe. And everyone around the globe has the option to save their value in Bitcoin. And then, you know, at a later point, like transact and like, it's this very incremental and gradual process um, where we can drive Bitcoin adoption without like, I, I want Bitcoin to be socially beneficial. I want it to be economically beneficial. Um, and, you know, war and conflict and, 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 you know, revolution are never going to be the quickest pathway to that. Maybe they become necessary pathways, but, um, I, I see a, maybe it's an, maybe it's a narrow path. Maybe it's not like a, you know, really common thing, but I think there is a chance where, we just keep building and people keep adopting and uh, Bitcoin becomes normalized without going through some like head to head confrontation with like the United States. And I, I, I like, you know, I know why people talk about that. I do. And I, you know, it's it's not in any way like me excusing the atrocities. Right. Like that's not what I'm doing. But I just think that like, despite that. Um, the best way to benefit, like, cause here's the thing. If Bitcoin becomes like a black market thing, your grandma's not going to want to buy Bitcoin, you know, like, 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 do we care about grandma or not? Like, I care about grandma. I care about the normies. I care about like the normie grandmas. I want them to buy Bitcoin. And like, uh, that's, you know, that's where I hope it heads. We'll see. I think that's a really important point, Stephen, because a lot of, Bitcoin is, and, and even podcasts that I listen to is it's all or nothing. It's like Bitcoin take over the world or, or nothing, you know, Bitcoin stand on nothing. It's like, well, actually Bitcoin can be successful if it's a complementary currency, even if, you yes. know, uh, 5% of the transactions around the world are used in Bitcoin. Fantastic. That's amazing. And you know what? That 5% will probably grow as people sort of look at it and look at the other currencies, inflate and whatever. So I don't think it has to be this, you know, bloodshed and tears and Bitcoin conquers all sort of thing. It just, it just needs to be an alternative to the current system. 100%. I, I completely agree with you. And that, that's kind of my view here too, is like, there are scenarios where Bitcoin is like incredibly successful, incredibly impactful, and it doesn't replace all fiat currency, at least in like the next 10 years or, you know, whatever, right? Like over a long enough time horizon, you know, whatever, anything can happen. But like, um, I, I think I think the sweet spot for Bitcoin is at least in the next five to ten years that we're looking at. This just kind of this let's just say this decade, like until 2030. I think the sweet spot for Bitcoin is it just becomes a global minority financial asset. And maybe five to ten percent of all the money in the world is stored in Bitcoin. I mean, you know. Anyone that owned Bitcoin today is filthy rich. Like, you know, you've made more money than your wildest dreams. It's become part of the system. People can, it has to maintain its neutrality. Like that's the key here is like, it's not just becoming like Wall Street Bitcoin. It needs to be credibly neutral. It needs to stay decentralized. And I think it will like, so like those are prerequisites. It still needs to be Bitcoin, but if we can get to a world where just like, like I said, 5% of all global wealth from institutions to individuals is stored in Bitcoin. That's a phenomenal outcome. That is a really phenomenal outcome for just like, let's just talk like this decade up until 2030. And I think, and this is the thing, this is the thing, the most protection, the biggest offense Bitcoin can ever have against any sort of like global coordinated attack is just 
people owning it. If enough people own it and save in it, that is a more effective shield than anything else. Hmm. Like if you can get 5% of all global wealth in Bitcoin, you've won. Like you've won. And you can only own Bitcoin if you take self-custody of Bitcoin. See, Mm -hmm. we've done a whole 360 of this uh, conversation and Swan helps you do that. And and, uh, I'd like to talk more about the exchanges, but you've given a lot of our time. But yeah, people see numbers on the screen because we're so used to banking. You know, Mm -hmm. I I go to the ATM, I see a number on the screen, I get cash out. Well, why wouldn't that happen the same with Bitcoin? I buy it on Binance or whatever. So uh, companies like Swan Bitcoin, um, educating people to take self-custody and, and ourselves as well is super important. So anyone listening to this, if you've got Bitcoin on Binance or Coinbase or whatever, um, you know, if you're trading or doing whatever, that that's fine. But if you've just got it sitting there, get yourself a hardware wallet, uh, call Swan Bitcoin, mm-hmm. call us, just get it off the exchange. I mean, that's, that's number one. Simple, yeah. but simple and boring, but steady. Yeah. Yeah. Like now, the- um, Steven, one, one last question. People, oh, sorry, go ahead, Gord. Sorry, I was just going to say for us, uh, very, very last question from me because you've given yeah. a lot of your time. Um, I was really fascinated by Swan's involvement, maybe even your involvement in the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Could you just quickly yeah. talk about that and then plug yourself? Yeah. So fortunately, that was actually that was actually uh, an initiative I stood up. So I, I, I kind of know that one like very intimately. Um, Bitcoin Policy Institute is, in my opinion the best potentially only like bitcoin only policy dc kind of lobbying research group um there are others that do good work for bitcoin i'm not shortchange those people i don't know if they're bitcoin only but they have done good work for bitcoin so i don't want to discredit that but um bpi as far as i know is the only one that is like really really only focused on bitcoin and it's a collection of like um, a couple policy guys, but it also just some amazing academics. So Troy Cross, uh, Craig Warmke, Andrew Bailey, Matthew Pines, uh, real and more like really brilliant guys, really, really brilliant guys with a, I think a good message and a, and a deep and nuanced take on Bitcoin that I care about because in kind of coming back to the view I've been expressing of like, I'm not in Bitcoin for the head to head battle with the state. That's not what I think is, is, is really good here. Um, I think these guys, um, are the best positioned to make Bitcoin make sense to, uh, like American institutions, like, like media, academia, government. Like these are the people that I think have a really good, both the credentials and the background and the ability to communicate Bitcoin in a way that I think can convert academics and policymakers and people in these kind of areas to really understand Bitcoin. I think that's important. I think our life is going to be a lot easier if those people are on our side rather than against us. Um, if, if we have a, if we have an option where they can be on our side, we should take it. And I think that the BPI guys are, uh, some of the best kind of people to try to make that outcome happen. Um, and people don't realize how like one-sided academic research is on Bitcoin. It's like, frankly, insulting, um, the research and uh, like research, like half of it is literally blog posts that gets like reverse engineered into journals and presented as if it's like a peer reviewed study. And it's just some fucking employee from a central bank talking shit on Bitcoin. Like it's a fucking joke. Um, 
but like that's what passes for research in academia right now on Bitcoin. And uh, that sucks and it's stupid. And we should make it so that there are pro, I don't even mean like pro Bitcoin because it should be neutral, but there should just be not anti Bitcoin Uh, academics running the thing. And uh, so we're trying to get more research put out there. We're trying to do some studies and energy consumption is obviously like the big theme. That's the attack angle. Bitcoin uses too much energy, but you know, a million angles, big proof of work, proof of stake, energy mm-hmm. use, why Bitcoin's good for America. These are stories that need to be told in that context, in these journals. Like it's just something that needs to happen until we do that. They're just going to be our enemies. And that's not that doesn't help adoption. Like that, that that doesn't get us to Bitcoinization. That doesn't get us to a Bitcoin future as fast as possible. And I think we should try to get there as fast as possible. So Swan's working with BPI to do that. We uh we we kind of we funded some initial studies and uh Peter McCormick actually matched us on that donation. So we were able to get some funding over to them to do some preliminary research. And we opened up a fundraiser and we raised some more money there to do more studies. And it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing effort. If you want to make donations to Bitcoin research and policy, BPI is the way to do it. Uh, we're working with them at, from the Swan angle. Um, do, do you have a link for that? And, and also I'd, I'd love to be able to tell my friends that Bitcoin's not killing babies in boiling oceans. So I mean, it'd just be amazing to point to an article and say, nah, that's the yeah. bogus. Well, you know, to be neutral here, sometimes ASICs do break into nurseries and, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, these, these machines, man, they're, they're dangerous. They, they grow legs and they walk through the night. Um, that, that's the same as, uh, Bitcoin miners throw away their miners and it causes e-waste after about a year mm-hmm. or a year and a half. I mean, I love that one too. Uh, that's so infuriating. It's just like a lie. Like they're just lying. It, it like, you know, anybody that believes that, I will buy all of your two-year-old miners for. Like, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Like, Donate them to them. us. We'll. I'll use. Yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'll recycle them. For, they'll be in a good place. Like <laughs> I'll even give you a hundred dollars for each one. Just give me all the two-year-old miners that people are throwing yeah. out. Like, please. Um, yeah. Do Do you have a link the, for that, um, Stephen? I'll get you one. Yeah, I'll get okay, you one. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the academic industry, I worked in there for a while. It is a slow moving ship and it's, the, it'll be the last one to turn around. It takes a while to turn around because I actually okay. helped, uh, University of Sydney. They wanted to launch a cryptocurrency, Bitcoin cryptocurrency course. And I thought they wanted to learn the fundamentals, but they just wanted me to help them show how do you trade this thing and move keys off exchange? Like, oh, is that, that, that's really what's their angle. Yep. So yep. they'll get there eventually, but yeah, it'll be frustrating in the meantime. Yep. Yep. It's slow. It's, uh, it's gradual. Um, it's the nature of the thing, but you know, we can't just ignore them. You know, it's not the right move to just say like, Oh, these guys aren't going to change their mind quickly. So let's just like plow forward without trying to make any overtures to them. Like you got to do it. Like it's just operating. It's just being an operator in the space and, you know, maybe we'll succeed and maybe we won't, but it's worth trying. And it's not Fantastic. easy. Education is not like a quick fix. Like just go here and whatever. It's, it, you know, what do they say? You got to listen to something seven times before you actually do something. It's like, listen to podcasts, uh, contact Swan, have a look at your blog post. It's like this stuff is iterative. Someone isn't just going to go, yep, Bitcoin's the key. Um, yep. so yeah, it's a hard slog, but, um, we'll get there eventually. And- 
And particularly because Bitcoin has no easy comparison. There's mm-hmm. nothing really that you can point to that people know well and be like, oh, Bitcoin, it's just like a, you know, it's like a this with an extra set of wheels, right? Like yeah. it's, there's no easy comparison. You have to just start to understand it and break it down from first principles. And it's multidisciplinary. It's not yeah. like Bitcoin's just ch- uh, tech or just economics or just politics. It's like, all of these things kind of put together. Well, you got to start with what is money first? You know, half the time I'm explaining Bitcoin to someone and I sort of throw that out the window. I throw out to central, like, what is money? What do you think money is? And then you get an idea of whether, what their level of understanding is about money and value and capital and markets, stuff like that. And then you're like, okay, now we can move on to Bitcoin. I've told you about that. Now we can explain Bitcoin. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. so really appreciate your time, Stephen. Um, we've gone way over an hour. Do you want to do a final wrap up, plug yourself, any final thoughts, comments? Yeah. Um, so I'm Stephen. I run private client for Swan. I kind of talked about that in the beginning. If you want to know more about what that is, it's our personalized white glove service for investors over at Swan. I've run that team since day one. Um, so if that sounds interesting, come come say hi, come introduce yourself, go on the website. Or uh, if you want to kind of follow me, I'm on Twitter. Twitter's the best way to follow me. Steven Lupka, just search that on Twitter. You'll 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 see my account very active there. You can DM me on there. You can also email me at Steven at swan.com. Um and uh, you know, final thoughts is I think this is just a really important time for us to explain the difference between Bitcoin and all of these things that just blew up because of massive fraud. That's our mission as Bitcoiners is we need to come out the other side of this with people having a better understanding of why Bitcoin is different than FTX. And that's, that's our mission. That's what we got to do. Cause people that may seem so obvious to us, but people don't get it. Yeah, I think someone mentioned recently we need a divorce from Bitcoin and crypto. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That was that was that was a really clever. That was I think Bitcoin mm-hmm. Magazine said that that was smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need. Well, a thank you very much, Stephen. It's been a real pleasure. We really appreciate your time, and, and I know our audience will definitely get a lot from this. Absolutely, guys. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Great to meet you both. Thanks again, thank Stephen. You, Stephen. Cheers. See ya. Thanks for watching or listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share so we can spread this educational content to others like yourself. Visit bitcoinbasics.help. Disclaimer. Any content provided by CoinCompass is for educational and informational purposes only and is not investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. A qualified professional should be consulted before making any financial decisions. CoinCompass will at times recommend certain products, services, and technologies but these are opinions based upon our own or podcast guests' experience and not endorsements. We take no liability for out-of-date or inaccurate information, software bugs, manufacturing errors, technology misuse, or issues involving third parties. Visit coincompass.com for more information and please contact us.